Father, thank you for those words of comfort and truth. You are God, and you have saved. Lord, I pray now that as we gather around your word, that you would speak through your very imperfect and feeble servant's lips, your word to your people, bring clarity, bring truth, bring boldness and confidence to us as we walk this life with you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and take a seat, gang. Thanks for joining us here tonight at Epiphany. We're almost done. The summer is almost over. Now, I, I don't know if some of you are big fans of, of the summer. Um, I'm okay with it. I'm all right with it. But I like the fall much, much, much better. I tend to get overheated very quickly. So when the fall comes and it's like nice 60-degree days, I'm a very happy man. So I'm looking forward to September. It's been awesome today to get just a little, little preview of that. Uh, so we're continuing on in the Gospel of Luke tonight. We sort of camped there this summer. Uh, we are going to be doing a new series sometime soon. Like in the next few weeks, we're going to be starting a series in Revelation. And I'm literally going to preach through the entire book. So uh, if you've ever had questions about that book, if... You've been scared by that book, or you've been completely and totally puzzled by that book. You'll want to join us for that. Um, frankly, I have a lot of study to do because I'm not even sure right now exactly what that book teaches. But I wanted to learn. I wanted to dig in, and I thought, well, as I'm doing this, as I'm going through this process, why don't I share it with you? So let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. Jesus went on his way, or he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are, sa who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is God's word. So this, this is the question, folks. Will those who are saved be few? That's the question our Lord is asked. And that's the question that we're going to try and tackle tonight. Uh, depending on which church 
tradition you come from or have been a part of or whatnot, there seems to be differing answers to that. If you're talking about the more, mm, for lack of a better term, progressive side of things or the more mainline church, then you probably have heard in some sense or another that basically everybody is getting in in some way or another. And if not everybody, well, a lot, the vast majority. And so the idea of judgment, the idea of, of a hell or something like that is downplayed, not talked about, and sort of the assumption is, is that we're all kind of getting in. On the other hand, of course, you have, you know, maybe the, the hyper-fundamentalist church or something where you're more likely to get the sense that only a very extreme few people, and at that, only those who agree with every jot and tittle of what that particular church teaches are getting in. And so everybody in those kinds of churches, outside of those kinds of churches, is a heretic, a false teacher, a false believer, and the constant refrain from those churches is, are you really a Christian? Are you really saved? And you're made to feel that, man, I'll be lucky if I make the cut. So the question, the question of who's getting in is not new. I mean, every generation of those seeking to be faithful to God has, has wondered about it. At the time of, of Jesus, there was, a, there was a debate between uh, those who said, you know, sort of merely having the right identity uh, or ethnicity was enough to merit heaven, while there was others, uh, more extreme groups at the time, like the Essenes and the Pharisees, who so that you had to be a specific amount of obedience to God in order to earn heaven. And so it's really out of that context that the question of our text arises. But as we're going to eventually see, I hope anyway, Jesus doesn't give them as simple an answer as we might want. As a matter of fact, I think he, in effect, ends up saying many won't be saved, and many will be saved. It's going to be sort of a both-and sort of thing. So let me discuss why I think that. I'll try to show you from the text, all right? So first, why many won't be saved? Well, he gives a bunch of reasons. First of all, uh, many won't be saved because they will seek to enter the kingdom another way. They will seek to enter the kingdom another way. A while back, I caught a debate between a uh, Christian philosopher, professor named John Mark Reynolds, and an author named Robert Wright. And the author had written a book called uh, The Evolution of God, in which he basically tried to make the case that the God concept, the idea, has, of course, evolved over the centuries with the human race. And at one point in the debate, the, the professor, the Christian professor, kind of went on the attack about some of the author's uh, supposedly flawed logic. And, and the author shot back at him and said, well, since you're so interested in logic, is it logical to believe that if a Buddhist or a Muslim or some other religion lives a good and wonderful self-sacrifice, self-sacrificing life, that because he doesn't believe in Jesus, he will be condemned? He will go to hell? And Jesus 
seems to answer in one sort, one way or another, yes. Now, instinctively, upon hearing that, if you're like me, we're kind of repulsed at the seeming injustice at it, of it at first. It seems harsh. It seems... But, is it unjust? Let's think about it for a moment. First, the, the, the author said, a person who is good and wonderful and self-sacrificing. So we must determine by that standard what, what that means. In theory, that the scholar quoted posits that such a person exists. But according to the scriptures, the standard is perfection, and no one meets that bar except, well, you know who, Jesus. Number two, is it, is it unjust for God to have a specific path to the kingdom, a specific doorway to enter the kingdom? Is that unjust? I don't think so. I don't think it's unjust. Um, it's actually, it's very logical. It's very rational. Look, I mean, if I invite you to come to my house, and I say, hey, here's my address. You can type it into the old you know, Google Maps. Don't use Apple. It doesn't work. But use the Google Maps, and uh, you get to 14 Hilltop Road. 14 Hilltop Road. That's my address. Okay? And so you type it in, and 14 Hilltop Road comes up. Now, just for the sake of argument, what if you, you shot back, hey, you know what? I don't, want, I don't want to hang out with you at 14 Hilltop Road. I want to hang out with you at, let's say, 73 Toad Hill Road in Staten Island. I said, well, that's not my house. I don't even know who owns that place. And you said, but that's where I want you to live. Well, I don't, I don't want to do for you. Like, I, I told you how to get to my place. Like, I told you how to get to my door. Like, I can't. That's where it is. What do you want me to do? You see the logic. I mean, you, you, can, you can do that. You can show up at the other address. But you wouldn't make it to the doorway of my house by doing it. So I don't think that's too exclusivist. I don't think it's too narrow-minded necessarily. It, it just is what it is. God says, that's the door. That's the address. The address is Jesus. Number three, it's good to keep in mind everyone has a narrow way for what they believe to be true. Whether it is or, or not true, everybody, everybody has some narrow ways. It just depends on the issue. It actually sometimes depends on where you're at geographically. I mean, if I go over to Williamsburg or Greenpoint and approach uh, somebody there on the street and say, is, tra is sex trafficking wrong? Chances are people are probably going to say, for the most part, yes, sex trafficking is wrong. Well, how narrow-minded. Don't you know that in some other places, they don't view it that way? Well, it's not narrow-minded. It's not narrow-minded to make decisions like that. The point is that we all have things that we're, we're narrow about. So I don't think that Jesus is being sort of overly narrow by saying it's got to be this way. So Jesus says there's one way to the Father, 
There's one way to the Father, and that Father, or that way is through faith in me. In other passages, he refers to himself as the gate, the way, the truth, the life, the door. And why is it that he made the claim that it was only through him? Because only he has lived the perfect life and died for sinners. Only he has actually defeated death and risen from death. It is, it's not that God is sort of being overly exclusive. It's that Jesus is the only one who is qualified to, in fact, save sinners. Which, by the way, his kingdom is made up of. So that's the first way. I mean, the first reason that some won't be saved is because they will refuse to go to the address that they were told. They just, they won't do it. Secondly, many, many will refuse to be saved because they refuse to repent. Jesus says in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, the word strive is the word actually agony in Greek. Agonize. This life, in, in one sense, as a Christian, can be an agonizing life in that part of what it is is to bear a cross. We're called to, to die to sin, to put to death the old nature. Now, the natural thing you think when I say put to death your old nature, don't do things that you used to do, is something like this. Do better, try harder, be a good person. I've heard, no doubt, I think, well-meaning preachers talk about this text that way. This means that you must contort your body. This is the, the, the idea of striving. You must contort your body and push to try and squeeze through the doorway of Jesus. They, they'll come to the passage where Jesus says, in order for a rich man to get to the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get to the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples say, well, then who can get in? Because if, I mean, in other words, that's an impossible standard, Jesus. And Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. For you, it's not. Some have, have, uh, some have suggested that when Jesus talked about the camel going through the eye of the needle, that the eye of the needle was a name for a gate. And the way the camel would go through that gate is all the stuff that was packed on top of the camel would have to be taken off of the camel, and then they would, they would bend down and contort their bodies, you know, somehow getting rid of their humps, I guess, and, you know, and get through the gate. In case you've ever heard that interpretation of that, I just, you should know there is 9.0% evidence of any gate called the eye of the needle. From what I can tell, it was it's just one of these kind of myths that got spread from preachers and pulpits. Now, the point of this narrow talk is Jesus is making the doorway so narrow that you can't get in apart from him. In other words, you can't get in apart from his miraculous ability to make you fit for the kingdom. What Jesus is saying is that it will be his ability 
that will cause you to get in. And this, in turn, will result in consistent confession and struggle with sin in this life. Listen to Romans 7 with me. This is, I think, the quintessential description of what the Christian life sort of sounds like in the day-to-day, -day, in the real life. In the passage, Paul describes very vulnerably the battle that never seems to stop raging within him. And he says this, verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. For I do what I do not want. Or excuse me, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever experienced that? I know what I should do. I know I shouldn't do this thing. I find myself doing it. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. You hear it? I want to do it. I want to do the right thing. But I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Dang it! Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it. Sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. In verse 23, he refers to this, this battle, this constant struggle as war. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so the Christian now is called to a battle every day against the flesh. Galatians 5, 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other. The point is, Jesus is making a point. He is saying, listen, there's no access to the kingdom apart from repentance. Repentance is what it looks like. That is a, a mere turning around to acknowledge you need Jesus. But it's not just a one-time thing that happened when you were converted at some point, maybe at some conference or at an altar call. It's every day. Every day is a life of repentance. As Luther said in his first of 95 Theses, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. So Jesus says, many, many will refuse to turn to me. Many will refuse to acknowledge they need me. Many will refuse to go through the battle. Also, many, many will not be saved or refuse to take the salvation that's won for them. Well, at least in this passage, it seems, because they take the patience of the master for granted. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, but he will tell you, I do not know where you come from. 
just be real. I mean, this passage, along with its counterpart in Matthew's Gospel, one of the, uh, I think, is one of the scariest passages in all the Bible. The picture is, is that there are a bunch of people that think they're good with Jesus. They think they know him. They sort of keep Jesus in their back pocket kind of thing. And then the end comes and they stand before him and they find out they don't know him at all. Oof. But unfortunately, there are many that take that attitude. There are many that are not hostile to Jesus. They're not angry at Jesus. It's not, it's not the caricature or something. They just don't want him. And so they say something like, I'll do it when I'm older. I'll, I'll come to Jesus when I'm older. But you know, the, the book of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. Today, today, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation, the book of Hebrews says. It's, it's important to remember how quick this life is. It's important to remember that although it may seem like it drags on, that God speaks to us now and says, no, no, if you don't know me, Believe now. As a pastor now for a while, I mean, I've seen this, I've experienced this. There was a woman who was the worship, one of the worship uh, leaders at our at my church in California. I was preaching on actually something similar that day about not taking the grace of God for granted in this sense, not not pushing it away, not pushing this relationship to God away. Uh, and we got done with the worship service, and I got a call about 20 minutes after. It turned out that her, that her husband had been playing a soccer game that morning. He's only in his 40s. He's a little older than I am now. And he fell. And he didn't get tripped or anything as far as I think he just suddenly fell. And immediately, they tried to revive him, couldn't revive him. Got him, on a, got him on an ambulance, got him to the hospital. And when I received the phone call from her 20 minutes after the service, all she said to me is, he's gone. Just like that, just, just like that. Her husband, who was seemingly healthy, I mean, he was playing soccer, he had three kids. Three, three kids, suddenly gone, just like that, just in an instant. And I was reminded again of it. Man, it's this life is so short. It's we ought not take this for granted or assume that we're going to have control over our life. And it seems that the people in this text did that kind of thing with Jesus. Many won't be saved. Because of what Jesus says in verse 26. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. In other words, they look back to something that had happened in Jesus' life and they use that as enough evidence to suggest that they were good with him. 
But they never really knew him. They never knew him. And even though he had invited the entire world to come, come, I want you, I want all of you, they did, pushed and pushed and pushed away. <clears throat> so it sounds pretty clear, at least from what I've preached so far, that there's only going to be a few that make the cut into the kingdom. Only a few that will be saved. Jesus definitely seems to be here, uh, siding with the folks that would suggest it's only the few, the proud, the strong. But let me wrap it up by saying not so fast. It is true, yes, many, Jesus says, will come to him and will find out the kingdom is closed. But on the other hand, he does go on to say at the very end, people will come from east, west, north, and south. In other words, the kingdom is far broader than any at that, at that moment could have possibly imagined it could be. It is designed for all people, much to the shock of many of the Jewish leaders at the time. Which means... We can confidently say, since Jesus died for all people, to every person we come across, that Jesus has one salvation for you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And it is free for the taking. It is free for the taking. And let me tell you why I can say this. You go back to the very first verse of our passage. You'll read what seems to be a short little historical detail that doesn't seem to mean much at all. We're told this. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. You say, okay, Eric, great. What's that mean? Well, I'll tell you. Almost all scholars of Luke's gospel agree that the, group, the book of, of Luke is really broken up into two sections. There's chapter 1 through 9, verse 50, and then there's chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to the end. Now you say, Eric, why do they say that? I'm going to tell you. In chapter 9, 51, here's what we read. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. In other words, from that point on in the gospel, Jesus is, is shown to be set on a mission to get to Jerusalem. Why does he want so badly to get to Jerusalem? To die for the sins of the entire world. And at the beginning of this passage, Luke wants us to be reminded of that again. Yes, it's narrow and that it's only through Christ. That's true. Oh, but that road is as broad as it can possibly be because Jesus' blood has been shed for every single human being out there, every single human being that's ever lived. And so Christianity has this unique, exclusive inclusivity. It's exclusively through Jesus. But Jesus has won it for all. So for those who trust in Jesus Christ, 
you can be confident that you are indeed on the path to glory. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for meeting us where we are and bringing Jesus to us. Help us look to him. Help us look to him alone. It is he who has provided atonement for us. And so we say, Lord Jesus, you are God. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray the prayer that you gave us to pray, saying with one voice, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.